Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, March 4th, 2018. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Predictions, opinions, statements of belief, we all have them. Uh, We've all made them, and there have been some pretty famously horrible predictions over the years, really bad ones, like uh, rock and roll, yeah, it'll be gone by June. So said Variety Magazine, 1955. Uh, I guess to their credit, they didn't say June of what year. So it could have been like, you know, 3030 or something like that. Uh, I see no good reasons why the views given in this volume should shock the religious sensibilities of anyone, said Charles Darwin in the foreword to his monumental work, The Origins of the Species, 1859. Stock prices have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. Economist Irving Fisher, 1929, three days before the stock market crash that led to the start of the Great Depression. Uh, The Beatles have no future in show business. This was a Decca Records executive after they interviewed or auditioned for them in 1962. This executive went on to tell the Beatles manager, we just don't like your boy's sound. Groups are out. Four-piece groups with guitars particularly are finished. Well, it's a good thing Decca Records didn't have to deal with all those albums that the Beatles sold uh, for years and years after that, huh? Uh, Remote shopping, while entirely feasible, will flop, said Time Magazine, 1968. It'll be years, not in my lifetime, before a woman becomes prime minister, said Margaret Thatcher in October of 1969. Ten years later, she became the first prime minister... And held that position from 79 to 1990. We can close the book on infectious diseases, said William H. Stewart, U.S. Surgeon General, speaking to Congress in 1969. Unfortunately, they have not. Uh, Though the United Methodist Church, as one of our focuses over the next four years, is working to eliminate uh, the infectious diseases, especially that cripple impoverished nations around the world. Ours has been the first expedition and doubtless will be the last to visit this profitless locality, said St. Joseph Ives after visiting the Grand Canyon in 1861. Like, who would ever want to go there, right? In 1949, Popular Mechanics said, computers in the future may weigh no more than 1.5 tons. Imagine trying to fit that in your pocket right now. Yeah. And finally, there is no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share. No chance, said Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer in 2007. Boy, it seems like the iPhone's been around a lot longer than 10 years, doesn't it? Crazy. Well, welcome to the third week in our Lenten sermon series entitled The Good Shepherd. And the season of Lent has been observed by the Christian church since about the 3rd century A.D. It's the six weeks of preparation, getting ready for the celebration of Easter. And, and Christians over the years have chosen to do in these six weeks to take time for self-reflection, for repentance, for spiritual devotion, and often the practice of, uh, of sacrifice and self-denial. You may have heard people ask, what are you giving up for Lent? And that's a practice of uh, find, taking something that we enjoy and going without 
as a way of remembering not only do we live not on bread alone, but of the sacrifice uh, that Jesus made for us. Well, I chose this topic after reading an exceptional book by Middle Eastern scholar Kenneth Bailey of the same title, The Good Shepherd. We started off a few weeks ago by looking at what arguably might be the most popular passage in all the Bible, Psalm 23. And then last week, Pastor Aaron led us through Jeremiah 23. And today we're examining uh, one of the last books of the Hebrew Scriptures, the book of Zechariah. So if you want to take out your Bibles or grab the Red Pew Bible or open your phone and bring up your Bible app, we're going to be following in Zechariah 10. And Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament. It's on page 885 if you have the Red Pew Bible. Zechariah 10, beginning at verse 2. For the teraphim utter nonsense, and diviners see lies. The dreamers tell false dreams. They give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They suffer for the lack of a shepherd. The prophet Zechariah starts out condemning the variety of ways that people in the ancient Near East would try to get predictions on the future. Teraphim were also known as household gods. They were like little figurines, uh, smaller than action figures. Uh, people would have them around their homes. Maybe they'd put them on their mantle in their living room. They were also small enough that they could take with them on journeys. And people would plead for devotion and guidance from the gods that these figurines represented. The other groups listed in verse 2, diviners and dreamers, are also leading the people astray. For the people of God shouldn't be going to fortune tellers, psychics, clairvoyants. They shouldn't be having their palms read, reading their horoscopes in the daily paper, or uh, even following the advice of fortune cookies. No, anything other than looking to God for their future guidance leads people astray. Zechariah says, well, unless you want lies, false dreams, empty consolation and utter nonsense, then go ahead. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They suffer for lack of a shepherd, says the prophet. The people who are leading God's people at this time weren't calling their followers to look only to God. They were allowing people to go on a variety of different ways to look for their future hope. Verse 3. So my anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and I will make them like his proud war horse. So unlike Psalm 23, there are no good shepherds in this passage, just bad ones. And, and God is going to hold the bad leaders accountable for their actions. Why? Because God loves his sheep. God cares deeply for God's flock. And God's tired of seeing the people led astray. They've been a ragtag, scattered, leaderless people, but that's all going to change, says Zechariah. God will transform them into something to be proud of, like a war horse. Bailey mentions that a king or military leader must be well-mounted when he appears before his troops. He cannot be seen leading his people into combat, riding on an old toothless nag. No, only a powerful stomping horse with an appropriate saddle, bridle, and frontlets is adequate for the king. His very presence is intended to inspire confidence in his troops and strike fear in the hearts of his enemies. That is what Zechariah says the people of God will be transformed into. These unfocused and scattered people are going to become something majestic to be used by God. These wandering sheep will become powerful horses. Verse 5, verse 4 and 5. Out of them shall come the cornerstone. 
Out of them the tent peg, out of them the battle bow, out of them every commander. Together they shall be like warriors in the battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight, for the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. Prophet Zechariah continues this transformation imagery. That God's people, the house of Judah, who had formerly been like wandering sheep, not only will be like proud horses in battle, they will also become cornerstones. The cornerstone was the first uh, and the largest stone that was laid for a building or for a house. And all the other stones and bricks were placed in relation to that cornerstone. Or tent pegs. Now, when the Bible mentions tent pegs, it's not uh, like the tent pegs we have today when we go camping. No, in the ancient Near East, tent pegs were more like these. They were tent poles, which were driven firmly into the ground and extended up into the air five to seven feet in order to create elevation for the roof. They were held in place by long ropes. And, and, and tent pegs were absolutely essential to any desert dwelling, any desert tent. The battle bow was just like the name suggests, a weapon used in battle. And again, all of these different images serve to convey a sense of purpose, of usefulness, of significance for God's people because they had not felt like they had any significance for years. We all need that, don't we? From time to time, we need to know that what we do matters, that we're here for a reason, that we have a purpose in this life. No one wants to feel like they're simply wandering, lost, or insignificant. And God created us to have a sense of something larger than ourselves. But at various times in our life, for whatever reasons, we sometimes forget that. We need the Good Shepherd to bring us back, to remind us who we are, to have God-sized visions of what we were meant to do. Verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and will answer them. So the phrase the house of Judah and the house of Joseph refer to the southern and northern kingdoms in Israel. After King Solomon's death, Solomon was David's uh, son uh, who took over the throne. After Solomon's death, the, the nation was divided. No longer were they one country, but they became two separate kingdoms. Israel was the north. It's sometimes referred to as the house of Joseph. And Judah was the kingdom in the south. Between the years 734 uh, B.C. and and 586, two separate superpowers came in and practically destroyed both kingdoms. The Assyrians were first. Uh, They ransacked the the northern kingdoms. They took the people away to Nineveh uh, and beyond. And that's the fuchsia arrows that you see at the top of the map there. Then the Babylonians blew into the southern kingdom, and they took the best and the brightest away to Babylon. Those are the green arrows. Many scholars say that this combined period, this time of the exile as it's referred to, has become the most significant event in the history of the people of Israel. It had a devastating effect on not only those who lived during that time, but for centuries afterwards. So when God says, I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected him, that's a powerful statement of restoration. Because listen to this, and this may be the most important thing you need to hear today. God's compassion is always greater than our pain. God's compassion is always greater than our pain. God's love for us works to strengthen us, to save us, to claim us, and to bring us back as lost sheep 
And sometimes in life, the struggle and the pain we have, it's, well, it's kind of our fault because of choices we make or decisions that may not have been the best. And we have to face the consequences of that. The Bible is clear that the exile was a response of the sin of Israel for generation after generation, that they just needed a reset to completely change their lives so that they can be focused back on God. But then there's other times in our lives that we're caught up in the aftermath and actions of choices that others have made. And we have to face challenges not because of anything we did, but because of what's happening around us. In both cases, God's compassion is always greater than our pain. Pastor Aaron talked last week about having the right perspective in this world. That if we can move through the ups and downs that life throws us, with a belief that God's compassion is always at work in our lives, that God is working for good in us and in the world around us, it makes a huge difference. Not just our our attitude and how we feel about it, but the way we talk and speak and relate to others. That's part of what it means to follow the Good Shepherd, to believe that God's compassion is always greater than our pain. Verse 7. Then the people of Ephraim shall become like warriors, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and rejoice. Their hearts shall exult in the Lord. Just one verse earlier, we heard about the house of Judah and the house of Joseph. Well, Ephraim was the name of one of Joseph's two sons. James Nagalski in his Smith and Helwey's commentary on Zechariah notes that the tribal region of Ephraim, when the 12 tribes came into the, into the promised land, Well, that was the population center and the agricultural core of the former northern kingdom of Israel. It contained the capital, Samaria, and the major worship site, which was Bethel. Now, when the Assyrians came in and and conquered the northern kingdom, not only did they take many of the Israelites away with them into captivity, but they also brought in a wide variety of other conquered peoples. I mean, they were a superpower. They had taken places all over in, in Asia and in the Middle East. And so they brought others of those into Israel. And many of them then intermarried and had families with the Hebrews that were still left. Centuries later, by the time of Jesus, the region had been renamed Samaria. And even though Samaria, Samaritans had Hebrew blood in their genes, they were still part of the original 12 tribes because they had intermarried with so many other cultures over the years because of the Assyrian invasion, then the Jewish people in Jesus' day rejected them. They said their faith was watered down, that they weren't the true Jewish people. And so that's why Jesus could tell the shocking story of the Good Samaritan because no Jew thought there were any Good Samaritans. Now, I tell you that not to bore you with history, but so you'll see that God is talking about the restoration and reunion of a people who have been dispersed and spread across the ancient Near East, which includes Ephraim and the Samaritans. God is truly talking about a complete restoration and reunification of the people of Israel, even those that others think are so outside of God's grace, they will never be part of God's kingdom. This is the part of the passage I didn't preach last week, so I've had two weeks to kind of uh, marinate in this uh, study. This has been hounding me and haunting me for two weeks. I still remember what one of my seminary professors said. If you want to get the, the, the most power out of the Bible, then when you're reading it, put yourself in the place of the least likable characters. The people that seem to be on the, 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 the negative side of things, put yourself in their position and read the Bible from that. So how are we 
like the Israelites who had been dispersed, fractured, and divided. Well, in our nation's history, the time that we've been most divided would have to be the U.S. Civil War, right? That this is how the country split between the North and the South, between the United States of America and the Confederate States of America. And there are many factors that went into our division, but one of the most prominent issues, of course, is the issue of slavery. So much so that you could even identify states as slave states or free states. I found this out in seminary. Did you know that during the Civil War, there's not a single record of a conscientious objector among Methodists? Meaning nobody said, because of my faith, I cannot fight in this war. Every other war, from the American Revolution all the way to current, there are some Methodists who'd say, no, no, I'm sorry, I'm not going to fight. During the Civil War, nobody said that. The country was so divided, you were either supporting the North or supporting the South. Now, I'm no historian, but I'd venture to say, we're living in pretty divided times right now. Right, whether it's political parties and ideology, Republicans versus Democrats, conservatives versus liberals, right-wingers versus progressives, or, or pick any number of the hot-button topics in today's culture. Second Amendment rights or gun control, immigration, the refugee crisis, securing our borders, homosexuality, marriage equality, abortion, our criminal justice system, legalized marijuana, you name it. There is no lack of issues that we will gladly plant our, our flags in the sand and tell others what we feel about it and why. But what breaks my heart is we all seem so eager to categorize anyone who doesn't agree with our point of view as the other. We immediately know who's for us or against us, either by what they say or by what they post on social media. We have very little grace for those who aren't in our same camp. We don't even really listen to uh, each other anymore. We label, we denigrate, we dismiss almost instantaneously. Or or am I overgeneralizing things in my assessment here? What would it mean for us today to have the good shepherd bring us back as a nation? To rebuild the bridges between each other that we have burned. To work for reconciliation and reunion as a nation. To open our hearts and minds to the possibility that we might grow and change and have a different understanding from what it is we believe right now. It doesn't mean you always have to believe what other people say. No. But maybe we can start without immediately hating those who have a different opinion of us. Verse 8. I will signal for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. And they shall be as numerous as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and they shall rear their children and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon until there is no room for them. At the start of these verses, God says through Zechariah, I will signal for them and gather them in. Kenneth Bailey says that's shepherd language. That each shepherd had a signal or a whistle. The Hebrew word here for signal also means whistle. And that's how the shepherd would call his or her sheep. It would be a song or a tune or even just their own uh, voice as they're whistling. And the sheep know the sound of their shepherd. So the people of God, Zechariah says, has been scattered. The flock of the Lord has been dispersed all across the ancient Near East. And now the good shepherd is signaling, is whistling, is calling for them to come home. So what does it mean? What's involved as we follow our shepherd? For starters, 
It says we have to remember the Lord. We have to draw close to God. We have to spend time in worship and prayer and reading scriptures. I struggled, even as a pastor, for the longest time between prayer and scripture reading. I mean, I could do what I needed to do to prepare for sermons or Bible studies, but just on my own, I felt like I really should be reading more. If I start to read or pray, I would fall asleep. And then I discovered scripture journaling, and you've heard me talk about this over and over again. Instead of reading the Bible for information, you're reading the Bible for transformation, to just one insight that might be interesting and begin to journal about it. And if you have had sort of a a love-hate relationship with scripture, pick up a scripture journal starter booklet on the way out this morning. And for me, literally, it has been the single most important thing that's helped in my spiritual life in the last two decades. So... We, we, we need to follow the Lord, but we also need to teach our children about God's love and grace. And I, I, I know one of the things that this church does really well is our children's ministry. Cynthia and our children's department does a fabulous job in helping our young people draw closer to God. And Miss Sandra and the preschool and after-school after program at Pooms also has been laying the foundation of faith in the lives of our littlest ones for decades But we also, as parents and grandparents and aunties and uncles and friends, need to keep pointing our children towards Jesus all throughout their lives at different phases and journeys, knowing that we're never too old to draw close to the shepherd. But God is also a major player in this as well. God says, I will bring them back. Christianity hasn't been, has been primarily about what God has done for us, not what we can do for ourselves, right? It's not you earn your salvation by doing all these things. No, we're saved by God's grace and God's love. We have a responsibility, of course, but God does the heavy lifting when it comes to restoration, reunion, and return. And so the trust that the shepherd is working to bring you back, and even when it feels like you can't do it, God is there to bring you home. Verse 11. They shall pass through the sea of distress, and the waves of the seas shall be struck down, and all the depths of the Nile dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, says the Lord. The Hebrew people know what it meant to pass through the waters. Remember their exodus out of Egypt, and Moses led them across the Red Sea. It was an amazing time. These last verses, God is telling us, That God will help overcome the troubles, the roadblocks, the dangers that lie lie ahead of us. No matter what it may be, as God brings us back to him. There is nothing in our lives that the power of God cannot overcome. It may not be the way we want God to have it overcome, but God is working to help us overcome those roadblocks. So really, that's my question for you as you leave today. What are the troubles, the the problems, the challenges, the roadblocks that you are facing right now in your family, in your work, in life? Can you trust that God is going to overcome those, that God is working to get you through that and to bring you back? What's the result? I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name. Isn't that what we all want to have strength in the Lord? may not be physical strength. It may be while our bodies are still wasting away, but our spirits and our, our souls and our minds will be sharp and strong and our hearts will know that God is working and leading us as we follow the path of the shepherd. Because in the end, that's the path that leads to life. That God is working in our lives, my friends, to bring about good, to bring us back, to help tear down the walls that we have put up between us, 
to help bring reconciliation and peace in our lives, not just our lives, not just our country's life, but across the world. The question is, will we allow God to do that? Or will we continue to wander off on our own ways like sheep often do? This is the last passage in the Old Testament that deals with the Good Shepherd. Next week, we'll venture into the Gospels, into what Jesus said about the Good Shepherd. But until then, may our hearts be open to those we may see as diametrically opposed foes. And may we follow the path of the Good Shepherd with our heart and soul and mind and strength. Amen. Amen.